You're listening to Misty Radio on WMBR Cambridge 88.1 FM, a show that connects MIT to the world. I'm your host, Sanaya Sampson-Hill. The shootings of six Asian women in Atlanta in March of this year may have felt like the apotheosis of anti-Asian violence in the time of COVID. Hate crimes against Asians shot up about 150% in 2020 in the largest American cities. This was connected to the increase of anti-Asian sentiment that emerged from the spread of COVID-19 in the U.S. Because of the origin of the virus, some Americans will call it the China virus or the Wuhan virus, COVID-19 was racialized and the Asian community suffered because of it. The shootings provoked responses and action on a national and local level. We wanted to share clips from a star forum organized by the Center for International Studies and Chris Bulkovich, our managing director for the MIT Japan program. In these clips, the panelists discussed the causes and those responses to anti-Asian violence. First was Paul Watanabe, who is a professor of political science and director of the Institute for Asian American Studies at UMass Boston. He served on President Obama's Advisory Commission on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders and as the first chair of the U.S. Census Bureau's National Advisory Committee on Racial, Ethnic, and Other Populations. He gets into the history of the racialization and consequential treatment of Asians in America. I've been giving some version of this talk for 40 years, and that is, is some version of this essentially when there's some outrage against Asian Americans, I pull out this talk. And it could be the Vincent Chin murder, or it could be Wen Ho Lee, or it could be South Asian treatment after 9-11, or it could be about the response to the COVID-19 pandemic, or it could be Atlanta. Then in some ways, the responses are all the same. The idea of Asian American invisibility and ignorance about them, and the notion of perpetual otherness. These are the themes, and these are the historical themes. And I think in some respects, uh, it's not much more complicated than that. And so I'm going to really try to give some sense about how these themes play out, what their consequences are. And in the mid-19th century, when Asian Americans started to arrive in fairly large numbers in California, for example, but never, ever a significant part of the overall population of the country, the number of Asian Americans was about 300 times less than it is today in the United States. Today, there are about 20 million people in the United States who trace their heritage in some ways towards Asia. There are about 500,000 in Massachusetts alone and 70,000 in Boston. They are now the fastest growing racial group within the United States, but growing in leaps and bounds, over tenfold increase since 1960, doubling each decade almost since then or immediately after then. And they're fed largely by one source, and that's immigration. Immigrants from Asia are, are now the largest number of new arrivals to the United States, and they will soon become the largest foreign-born population within the, the United, within the country. And indeed, in Massachusetts, over 60% of the foreign-born population, of the adult population is foreign-born. This is truly a population that is essentially an immigrant population and a, and a population of, uh, uh, that, that's original ties are beyond the United States even today. Amongst this group, there is huge diversity, and that's why this diversity is something that we have to understand. There are 19 Asian ethnic groups with more than 1,000 people in Massachusetts alone. The smallest of these groups are the Bhutanese, and the largest are the, have about 1,000, 
and the largest are the Chinese with about 170,000 people, Chinese Americans in Massachusetts alone. And there's great socioeconomic diversity as well. They are by, in income and poverty rates and educational attainment. They are not an undifferentiated monolithic minority by any means. And this is part of the notion about as though they're all the same, but they're not. There's huge differentiation in terms of educational attainment and poverty and income and so forth amongst those 19 major ethnic groups. And while there may be this notion that all Asian Americans are fresh off the boat, the fact of the matter is that they have been on these shores for over 200 years. And in Boston's Chinatown alone, the one down by South Station, it, is, it has been a Chinatown for almost 150 years and is one of the few surviving, really functioning Chinatowns. That is a Chinatown, not only with the, the, the gates and so forth, but actually Chinese people living within it. It's an authentic Chinatown to some degree. And it's been in that same location almost 150 years. So we're not new. We have not recently arrived. Longevity is part of our experience. But despite these numbers, despite this longevity, Asian Americans have largely been invisible. They have been hidden in plain sight. They have seen, been seen, but not seen. I think, for example, perhaps in our history books, the one time we, we think about Asian Americans, perhaps, is, is the building of the Transcontinental Railroad, which is completed in 1869. And the famous picture that is in almost every history book that depicts that moment when the two trains come together in, in, in Promontory Point, Utah, the trains from the east and the west meeting together at that place, which is north of where I grew up in Utah, in fact. And the trains come together and the driving of what was called the Golden Spike, the last spike in the tie, and the celebration that took place at that point, you see these people in this picture, famous picture, celebrating that where the two trains come together. Well, it's interesting, if you look at that picture, and I have, and I've done it almost with a microscope, the fact of the matter is there's not a single Chinese person in that picture. And you say, well, so what? Well, the fact of the matter is, in terms of building that railroad, the people who actually built it were not Leland Stanford, who paid for it, but the people actually build that the labor in coming from, west, from east to west, the easiest part were principally Irish laborers. And those who build it, the most treacherous part from west to east across the Sierra Nevada mountains and across the deserts of Nevada were Chinese laborers. Almost 80 to 90% of the labor were Chinese laborers. They're the ones who actually built the railroad and yet at this moment at which we commemorate who actually built it, there's not a single Chinese person in it. I thought somebody might do a Where's Waldo sort of thing and try to sneak in the picture, but I, I don't think so. And someone pointed out to me, they said, well, Professor, this was the picture. This is not the picture taken right at the moment. This was taken a little later in the day when they tried to recreate. And I thought that's even worse because here is a chance where they could try to get it right. And they still left the Chinese out of the picture. See, the Chinese were invisible during that, during that episode. That's why, by the way, Corky Lee, who just recently passed away, the chronicler of the Asian American movement, he's a photographer who you saw at every event anywhere in the country almost involved Asian Americans over the last 50 years or so, who passed away because of COVID-19 in New York just a few months ago. He made a point at the anniversary of the driving of the Golden Spike two, two years ago, to go at exactly at that point where the two trains are depicted there, they're, they're sort of there at the Golden Spike mon Monument. 
and he got hundreds of descendants of the Chinese railroad workers and brought them to Promontory Point, Utah, and took a picture and had only Chinese in the picture. That was his picture. That was his way of trying to say we're no longer invisible. We're going to recapture the moment. It's a wonderful moment. You know, Oscar Hanlon, who's a Harvard professor, he wrote the book, what was called the book on immigration. It was called The, the Uprooted, the Epic Account of the Great Migrations that Made the American People. This was the standard text on immigration history. But in the standard text, there was not a single word about people who came across the Pacific and went to Angel Island. He focused only on those who came across the Atlantic and, and, and came to uh, New York Harbor. Not a single word about those who came across that other ocean. That's why a, a, a University of California at Berkeley professor uh, named uh, Ron Takaki said he was going to write he's going to write this story. He's going to correct the story, and he wrote a book and he called it "Strangers from a Different Shore." And notice the title: "Strangers from a Different Shore." He was going to talk about those people who came across that other ocean because of the way in which they were invisible from the standard immigration histories. What are the consequences of invisibility? Well, the consequences of invisibility is that a group is often marginalized. It is, it is subject to prejudice, it is vulnerable, it's stereotypes. It is in some way shaped by the dominant society. It is racialized, to use the terms of Omi and Winnet. And Asian Americans have been racialized in various ways. There, sort of one extreme is the model minority idea, which I'm not going to get into today. But it's an idea that really says less about Asian Americans. It says more about disciplining blacks and other, uh, other uh, groups. But the other one is the one that, again, Melissa talked about, the notion of perpetual foreignness, of outsider racialization, as Angelo Anchetta calls it. And this idea of perpetual foreignness is first to exclude Asian Americans and secondly, to discipline Asian Americans. That's the key. It's to discipline Asian Americans. And it has all kinds of slights in the way and where did you, where did you really come from and all these sorts of slights that Asian Americans are, 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 are used to. But it has real historical manifestations. From the time the country was created, we created a class of, of people and they're principally originally blacks and Asian Americans who are immigrants to this country where we talk about this country as being the land of immigrants. But we told this group of people that you cannot, even if you're immigrants, become citizens. And we told this to black immigrants and we told this to Asian American immigrants. So we created this category called aliens ineligible for citizenship. And even after blacks, after it, it, the, the Civil War, were able to get their citizenship restored, Asian Americans continue to be a group that were aliens ineligible for citizenship. In fact, the experience of Asian Americans on the shore has been for a much longer period of time in the United States, they have not been able to become citizens than the period of time they have been able to become citizens. It's within my lifetime that Japanese Americans like myself who are immigrants could become citizens. So we have lived under a situation under much longer, we've been ineligible for citizenship than we've been eligible for it. And of course, this led to exclusion. It's led to the World War II incarceration of Japanese Americans. It's led to treatment of South Asians after 9-11. It's, it's contributed to the COVID-9 responses, the so-called China or the Wuhan virus, using the, the language of President Trump. And why is this so pernicious? Why is outsider racialization so pernicious? Because it, it, it combines two important forces, nativism and racism. 
the United States in 1882 for the first time when we told a group of people, you cannot come here because of your race. We invented the notion of undocumented immigrants in 1882 when we told people of Chinese descent, you cannot come here because of your race or where you're coming from. We, we said to these people, maybe, maybe it was like it today. Maybe people are saying, well, we just have too many immigrants. It's nothing against you Chinese people. Well, in Chinese, and 1882 was the, 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 the highest year of, of Chinese immigration in the United States. 39,000 Chinese came in 1882, and maybe you say, well, maybe that's just too many. But more Americans trace their ancestry to one country more than any other, and that country is Germany. And I went and looked at the data. It turns out that 1882 was the peak year of German immigration to the United States up to that point. And in Germany, and German immigration in 1882 was 250,620. So maybe it was, it was more than simply the quantity. Maybe it was the complexion, literally. Maybe there was racism behind the decision to, to close immigration to the Chinese and not allow uh, them to come any longer. And then there, of course, was this racist, as a sexist dimension in, in addition to the nativism and the, and the and the racism, and, and uh, Professor Moon is going to talk about that in terms of the Page Act and, and the Atlanta shootings two weeks ago and, and, and so forth. But let me uh, sort of end my comments by asking, by asking this question. What, do, what should we be doing about this, and what does this mean for Asian Americans like myself and for others who are trying to fight for racial justice in the United States? Almost 120 years ago, W.E.B. Du Bois said the, pro the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. Here in 2021, as we approach majority non-white nation in 2043, as we're going to be a majority non-white nation in 2043, how will we respond to this, to this problem? Well, the color line, I think, sadly, has been reaffirmed nearly a year ago with the murder of George Floyd in the, in the, in the latest season of our discontent. From Minneapolis to Louisville to Kenosha to El Paso to Squirrel Hill to Oak Creek, to Brooklyn, to Belmont, Massachusetts, to Atlanta. What it, Martin Luther King called the shameful condition of America has been fully on display. In terms of the COVID pandemic, Asian Americans have been blamed and bullied for the so-called China virus. But even worse, they have been beaten to death. They have been slashed with a, with a knife. They have been shot with high-powered weapons. And even today, another report of an elderly woman attacked in, in news reports of a new phenomenon, a slap in Asian challenge in, in, in California, has emerged within the last few days. Racism assuredly is alive, racial hierarchies intact, and, inep and inequities persist and even grow. Asian Americans have important roles to play in confronting the racial divides. And to our Latino brothers and sisters, I say, we Asian Americans can say, we know we have been the undesirable strangers at the border, first to exclude us in 1882, and then to create aliens and eligibles for citizenship afterwards. We have had paper sons. My father was an undocumented immigrant. Over one million of Asian Americans today are out of status. And we have been targeted for deportation like Cambodians, youth, and young adults here in the United States. To our Muslim and Arab brothers and sisters, we know we have been called the yellow peril. We have called agents of foreign influence. We have been called responsible for collective guilt, like my family that was thrown into America's concentration camps for looking like the enemy. 
And then in some ways, the explanation for how we had to endure that was this idea of shikata ganai, it can't be helped. That was the explanation for why we had to put up with what happened in a practical way. We have been blamed and bullied for the China virus, so we know. And to our black brothers and sisters, let me say this. In Ferguson, Missouri, many residents and members of the police department wore badges. And those badges say, I am Darren Wilson. Now, Darren Wilson was the police officer who shot the young 18-year-old Malcolm Brown. And they wanted to show solidarity with Darren Wilson, the person who murdered Michael Brown. Well, to our black brothers and sisters, indeed for all of us, the beginning of understanding and the hopes of eradicating persistent racism and debilitating inequities is when all of us, yellow, black, red, brown, and white, proclaim in solidarity that I am Michael Brown, I am George Floyd, I am Trayvon Martin, I am Breonna Taylor, I am Heather Heyer, I am Vincent Chin, I, have, I am Sun Cha Kim. I am not an illegal, I am not a terrorist, I am not a yellow peril, I am not a virus, I am not the other. I am, we are all somebody, and we are sick and tired of aggression, micro or macro, with being slapped, spat upon, or shot, and we are no more willing to say shikata ganai. Next, we wanted to share clips from Kathy Moon during the forum. She is a professor of political science and the Wasserman Chair of Asian Studies at Wellesley College. She was a senior fellow and the Korea Chair at the Brookings Institution. Her research covers U.S.-East Asian relations, the politics of North and South Korea, women and gender and international relations, social movements, and international migration. She talks about this unique form of intolerance and othering Asians experience with a focus on the treatment of Asian women. I use the word foreignerism because I think this is something that is particularly salient uh, in terms of targeting Asians. Not all immigrants in America are considered foreigners the way Asians and Asian Americans are, continue to be considered as foreigners. Other immigrants, other ethnic minority groups have targeted Asian Americans as foreigners. I myself, I cannot tell you how many times I have had racial slurs, taunts, uh, bullying by whites, blacks, Latinos. It runs the gamut. Um, so what is it about Asians and Asian Americans? Uh, we don't invite this kind of discrimination and racism. We are not the only immigrant groups, uh, groups in, in the United States that stick out, but somehow um, this this particular type of othering, this foreignerism, is something that is a huge burden on many of us. Asians and Asian Americans, as Professor Watanabe has mentioned, uh, we have been part of American society since the mid 1800s. There actually were Chinese who fought in the US Civil War. The first time I learned that was not that long ago and I was floored and I was moved because it gave me as a Korean American, a much deeper sense of roots. And every time in my own family, extended family, I have a new birth in a nephew or niece or a cousin's child, I feel a particular kind of an emotional um, stimulation, the sense that um, the roots are thickening, deepening, and that the branches are getting greener and fuller. 
Um, why do I react that way? Because of this foreignerism that I and many other Asians and Asian Americans live with every single day. Um, whether it happens or not, psychologically, it's just pervasive. We so much want to be regarded by non-Asians and Asian Americans as part of the American fabric, as an organic part, not some plopped image standing there or stuck on the fabric, but an integral organic part of that fabric. But even with multiple generations that root us in American life, we continue to be regarded as visitors, tourists, temporary residents, as quote, not real Americans. And I think that foreignerism renders Asians into targets for racist actions and violence by those who are not of Asian descent. Uh, and as, as uh, people have already uh, referred, um, but I'm going to specify here, Monday, a Filipina American, age 65 in New York City in broad daylight, late morning, 11 uh, something in, in the morning, was violently assaulted by Brandon Elliott who yelled out, F you, you don't belong here. How many times have we as Asians and Asian Americans in this country um, heard this? Um, today, Mr. Elliott was charged with felony assault as a hate crime. He was caught and arrested and charged. Um, my field, my training is international relations and comparative politics. I don't study American politics. So what I'm going to offer you today is uh, a brief discussion of how recent events Atlanta and elsewhere um, connect with the international. And for this, I have to go back to the history of wars in which the United States has been involved, uh, especially in the 20th century. Uh, since the mid 20th century, Americans encountered more Asians on Asian territory than in the United States. And Asians became the quote other, either as vicious enemies specifically Japanese during World War II or the Pacific War, communists in China, North Korea, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, either vicious enemies needing to be destroyed or weak and helpless victims, people needing to be protected and saved from communism. South Koreans in the 1950s, South Vietnamese in the 1960s and 70s, and Filipinos um, because the Philippines has been uh, a military ally of the United States and the US has had um, large scale naval bases there and we still have active uh, port calls there. Severe poverty and weak political order internally in these countries meant millions of Asians were put into subservient roles for the US forces, literally as servants, domestic servants, cooks, both male and female, prostitutes, Shoeshine boys, um, and when I say prostitutes, uh, I use the word prostituted women. Um, I don't use sex workers, mostly because the women I have interviewed from my own research in Korea who worked around the military bases, they do not necessarily use that term to identify themselves, especially those of older generations. But basically servants, sexual servants, um, in addition to all these other types. Large-scale troop presence inevitably, inevitably created sexual commerce as camp followers and rest and relaxation industries, R&R &R industries, that's the euphemism 
for the um, entertainment industries that cater to US troops um, popped up. And although Thailand never experienced war fighting by US forces on its own soil, Thailand became a hotbed of the R&R industry to accommodate US servicemen fighting in Southeast Asia. And I find that there is a continuing depiction of Asians and Asian Americans as weak, passive, scared in the media portrayal of um, the responses, Asians and Asian Americans responses to the recent violence. We all have read in the papers, in uh, watched and heard on uh, news shows, the terms fear, trauma, afraid to go out, used to describe so-called Asian responses. And I've always wondered uh, for the last uh, two weeks or so, um, who are these Asians and Asian Americans who are referring to themselves this way or referring to all of us this way? I really don't think people have been surveyed. If anybody wants to survey me, I'm happy to tell you, I am not someone sitting at home afraid to go out, traumatized and fearful. But I find that these terms reflect and reinforce these negative stereotypes of people of Asian descent as being weak and passive. As far as the Atlanta shootings go, they have generated concern over sexism and misogyny in addition to racism. And I wanna just give you a brief um, overview of what many Asian women have had to deal with in Asia before they even came to the United States, but also the kind of images of Asian women that have developed over time through the US military experience in Asia. The view of Asian women as sex servants. There is a historical context. Large numbers of US soldiers who went to Asia from the 1940s to the current day were and are very young, often teenagers or 20 somethings who never had left their hometowns and ended up landing in these quote, foreign countries, these exotic, so-called exotic countries, where the people they saw were local camp town people, people living around US military bases that developed businesses to accommodate American soldiers' consumption habits, cheap bars that usually have women for sale. Asian countries became synonymous with cheap available sex and as much as Asian governments have disliked and chafed at the view of their countries as one large brothel, these governments are also responsible for having facilitated wide-scale sex industries. Politicians, political leaders, business people, they used women's bodies to gain national security commitments from the United States, as well as to gain foreign exchange. The women themselves in Asia were often harassed and, and harassed and physically beaten and assaulted in different ways from local police, from traffickers, bar owners, pimps, from US troops, the list goes on. Many egregious murders, un unbelievably outrageous, heinous crimes took place in these camp towns um, on women's bodies and lives perpetrated by US servicemen. In some instances, we can trace the history of US involvement in Asian wars directly to sex establishments owned and worked by Asians in the United States. But in many cases, we cannot. 
very recent, more, I'm sorry, more recent Chinese immigrants, people who did not encounter US troops on Chinese soil have set up sexualized massage establishments. For example, the infamous Orchids of Asia massage shop in Florida where Robert Kraft, the owner of the New England Patriots was caught on video in 2019. Today, anti-Asian racism, I think, is a mix of old, the old meaning the history of Asian land wars involving the United States, as well as the uh, poverty and underdevelopment of Asian countries from the 40s to the 80s or so, a mix of the old and the new. Of course, we already have had the rise of China and the rise of Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, but most recently the rise of, uh, I'm sorry, the rise of Japan occurred way before all these countries but most recently the rise of China. Uh, it's in the news all the time and the trade wars and Mr. Trump's outrageous uh, racist sentiments against uh, Chinese and China um, have done a huge disservice. Envy and resentment as well as active Japan bashing and China bashing by politicians have helped create this current situation. Misty Radio is a production of MIT International Science and Technology Initiatives. You can listen to us on WMUR Cambridge 88.1 FM or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you next time.